Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 148, Dr. Daniel McCoin on Faith, Part 2. Dr. Daniel McCoin earned an MDiv from Princeton Theological Seminary and an MA and a PhD in the History and Philosophy of Science from the University of Notre Dame. He's now an Associate Professor of Philosophy at Boston College, who specializes in philosophy of science, epistemology, and philosophy of biology. He's also published some very interesting articles in philosophy of religion. I was privileged to meet him and talk with him at the Nature and Value of Faith Project this July in Bellingham, Washington. In this second part of my conversation with him, we'll hear about his own way of understanding the nature and value of faith, as developed in some interesting articles. This podcast would not have happened had not this meeting happened, and so we're grateful for the support of a grant from the Templeton Religion Trust. Of course, the opinions expressed in this podcast, or those of Dr. McCoy and myself, do not necessarily reflect the views of the Templeton Religion Trust. Dr. McCoy, welcome back to the Trinity's Podcast. Thank you. It's great to be back with you. Dr. McCoy, last week we talked about what you consider to be some mistaken ideas and assumptions about faith. What do you think is the right way to understand what the Jewish and Christian scriptures call faith? Well, let's start by thinking about faith as the response that God has said to desire of humans and try to think about what, if anything, is valuable about it why people thought that God would desire a response like that. As a first gloss, I think that faith is a kind of trust in or reliance on God. I think that Christian faith is a personal response that most centrally involves two things. So there's that first element of trust in or reliance on God and Jesus, a kind of turning to God, a repentance, and entrusting oneself to God's care as a proper response to God's faithfulness. And then I think there's an important second aspect, which is a commitment to a personal, sacred, covenantal relationship to walking with God, in God's ways, and to following Jesus. The Bible describes that relationship in many different ways, comparing it to, you know, a shepherd and sheep, parent and child. But one very important analogy used for faith is that it's a relationship comparable to marriage, in which terms of personal intimacy, childlike intimacy, Abba, Father, Daddy, are appropriate And things like dependence, loyalty, allegiance, and obedience are appropriate. So I think it's helpful to think about faith in the context of a covenantal relationship between two parties that involves trust and reliance on the other person, and then also loyalty, allegiance, or commitment to remaining engaged in that relationship and being faithful. So not necessarily a relation between equals, but anyway, it's a person-to-person kind of thing. That's right. So let's develop that analogy with marriage a little bit. I mean, just as in a marriage relationship at its best, one can remain committed to one's spouse through good times and bad times and the waxing and wanings of one's momentary desires and passions. One can be committed to cultivating and maintaining a relationship with God or Jesus in a way that is not simply dependence on the ups and downs of either belief or desire. 
So what's called for on this view is not belief, but a decision to follow. So even if what one believes isn't under one's direct voluntary control, one can resolve to remain actively and faithfully engaged in a long-term relationship, even if one comes to doubt God's existence or faithfulness. One can continue to willingly engage in acts that depend on the truth of the gospel proclamation with eyes wide open to one's risk and vulnerabilities. So I think that we get a very different picture of the relationship between faith and doubt on this view. It's a view, an understanding of faith that the Bible leaves open. Indeed, I've tried to ensure that it's one that's deeply informed by a biblical understanding of faith. But it also is compatible with doubt to a much greater extent and in a way that the belief plus view of faith is not. You mentioned the analogy of marriage, Dr. McCoy, and I can't help thinking about how sometimes women talk about thinking this guy's the one, you know, like he's the best person I could pick, or anyway, he's a really good pick. But, you know, when he just uh, acted like a jerk, or (laughs) when you've been married 17 years, you may or may not have that belief, right? But the marriage is still there. And the reason it's still there is because your commitment is still there. That's right. So we should be aware of all kinds of ways that relationships can go wrong, that trust can be abused. We want to be sensitive to those issues. But I think we also shouldn't overlook the many goods that a committed relationship of that kind can open up for both parties involved. I mean, it's very easy to see the value of faithfulness, right? We want friends that are loyal to us, that are going to be there for us during hard times. Children want parents that they can depend on who are reliable and will be looking out for their best interests and needs. And I think that we can also see that faith has value, particularly in moments in which a relationship is strained or under duress. So in a marriage relationship, maybe you're presented with evidence to think that your partner has been unfaithful to you or committed some horrible crime. Obviously, there's going to come a point when, if the evidence is strong, that you should lose your faith in that person. But there's also some value in resisting that initial accusation, in hanging in there. So I think that there's also a real value to having faith in a person in times when a relationship is challenged or under duress that one is called upon to continue to trust in spite of some evidence that the partner hasn't been faithful or has done something horribly morally wrong. Relationships can be more durable, more stable, if we have some kind of initial resistance to abandoning the relationship. So suppose I pick up my wife's smartphone and I see that there are some calls that look like they've come in from what I think is the number of her ex-boyfriend. And she hasn't mentioned this to me. And if I lacked faith in her, I might just, that tears it, walk out the door and she never sees me again. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But this seems like it's just obviously the wrong response that I should continue to put my trust in her. Maybe it is the boyfriend's number, but he changed phone companies and somebody else got his number and now it's her lady friend's number. Or maybe I'm mistaken, it's not really his number, but it looks like this, the relationship ought to be able to just continue along. And so you're saying that's part of the value of faith is that it makes us persist in personal relationships, even in the face of counter evidence, at least up to a point. If I walk in and literally see my wife cheating on me, 
faith is maybe not what's called for <laughs> in that circumstance. I have to believe my eyes. That's right. The resilience of faith can be pressed beyond a breaking point. But it's nevertheless a very valuable thing to have some degree of resistance, of commitment to continuing to be engaged in the relationship, um, even when you encounter trials and difficult times along the way. It seems like it's particularly appropriate in circumstances where we don't have total information. I'm here with you doing this interview, and my wife isn't with me. What's she doing? Well, I trust her, and that's how marriages are. There's always imperfect information about the other person's intention, but I mean, who is it that believes in God that thinks they know what God is up to at all times or what God's will is you know, regarding things that they're interested in? I mean, nobody, right? That's right. Yeah, I think that we can recognize the value of faith and faithfulness, of trust and trustworthiness as foundational importance in all kinds of human relations. So in Greco-Roman culture, for example, we find the celebration of faith, the Greek word pistis, the Latin word fides, operating in relationships at every social level and economic class. So not only were these qualities that were thought to be good when they characterized relationships between wives and husbands, parents and children, masters and slaves, patrons and clients, subjects and rulers, armies and commanders, friends and allies, other fellow human beings. Many Roman coins commemorate fides. It was thought to be so important they worshipped fides as a goddess. It was part of the propaganda when they would come into a newly conquered land. They would invite people to place their trust in the emperor. And the thought was that in doing so, certain goods would come along with that, that you would have more grain and at least better chances for prosperity. Maybe there would be some basic rights that would be insured for citizens. And the Romans found it very effective to enter into these sort of mutual relationships with conquered people. Things will go better for you in the kingdom if you willingly place this kind of public trust in the emperor. This is a very interesting point. The Greek word pistis and the Latin word fides were commonly used outside of a specifically religious context. And so what kind of meaning did they have? The central words for faith in Hebrew are the noun emunah, which means firmness, fidelity, being steadfast, reliable, dependable, trustworthy. There's this ambiguity between faith and faithfulness that I think we should resist attempting to pull apart. Conceptually, we can distinguish between faith and faithfulness. A philandering husband could have faith in his wife to be faithful while himself being completely unfaithful to her. And similarly, the wife could be faithful to her husband while completely lacking faith in her husband. 
But I think that the Hebrew terms closely associate faith and faithfulness and insist that at least faith at its best is often expressed by the attempt to be faithful to God. The other Hebrew word, aman, is a verb from which we get the word amen. You know, so be it. Let it be so. I stand by that. Aman means to support, to put trust, to have faith, to stand firm, and to be faithful. So you, again, get this holding together of the faith and faithfulness sides of a relationship. So they're both important goods that you say that these terms, the Hebrew term, the Greek term, the Latin term, they're ambiguous. They refer to both of these central goods that you place trust in another, but you're also worthy of having trust placed in you. And ideally, we would want both of those things in a marriage or even in just a friendship or an association. That's right. So I'm suggesting that the Judeo-Christian notion of faith calls us to both faith and faithfulness. It calls us to both trust in and rely on God and also to be faithful, to remain loyal, committed, and engaged in this relationship to which we give our allegiance. The other Hebrew term, emeth, often is translated as truth, but it also has these shades of meaning, faithfulness, to be faithful, um, or to have faith. There's this connotation of reliability, stability, and firmness also in that word. Now, we can get a clue to what early Jewish communities meant by these words by looking at how the Hebrew was translated into Greek in the 2nd and 3rd centuries BC. The Septuagint translators choose the words in the Pistis family to translate emunah and aman and ameh. So we've got the Greek noun pistis, which means faith or faithfulness, and the verb pisteuo, to have faith, to trust, to rely on. It's often translated as believe in English because we lack a verb for faith in English. But very often when you see the word believe in an English translation, the Greek word there is pisteuo. So it's from this cluster of words that means faith. And I think is often just as well translated as to have faith or to trust. And then God is often said to be pistos, the adjective, faithful, trustworthy, reliable, and dependable. We're here at the Nature and Value of Faith Summer Seminar, and I've noticed that myself and a few other people present here have taken to talking about faithing. We made up our own active English verb to try to express what pistuo often means. It can mean to be loyal, but if it means to put trust in, we translate with this insipid to have faith, but it takes the activity out of it. I would be very glad to see that catch on. There's a need for some new vocabulary here, in part because some of the words traditionally chosen have changed their meaning over the years. Consider the word believe. So the Latin word credo, credere, the verb I believe, comes from the Proto-Indo-European root that puts together a word for heart and then the verb to place. So literally, credo comes from cordere, to set your heart on something. There's a rich affective connotation in early belief talk that I think has been almost entirely lost in modern philosophy. Certainly the epistemologists that I talk to don't have that at all in mind when they use the word belief. 
They think of belief as this largely passive, involuntary state. You consider the proposition in a disinterested way and ask yourself how likely you think it is to be true. But the reason I think belief talk was early on seen as an appropriate translation for pisteuo was because it involved many of the kinds of affections, the holding dear, the pledging of oneself, the giving of one's allegiance and loyalty to God that were indeed valued as part of a commitment of faith. Wilford Cantwell Smith has some detailed etymological arguments on how belief talk in Latin, French, German, and English gradually lost this connotation of holding dear, of loving, over the centuries. Although some of the claims I think he makes go a little bit too far, I think there's some important insights that we shouldn't fail to notice in just how much modern-day belief talk has, has been emptied of those rich affective connotations. And I think, you know, it may be that introducing a new word like faithing or just simply translating pisteuo as to trust or to have faith can help hold on to some of the elements that the biblical authors took to be most valuable about faith. And I think that it's much less puzzling to see why someone might value faith if we keep those aspects in view when we talk about faith. You were mentioning that even the older English usage had more of a connotation of personal commitment. I still think it comes out once in a while. It's true, I think, in a religious context, when someone starts saying, do you believe, we instantaneously think, believe what? Like, give me the list and I'll tell you. But there's still a use that respects this. Imagine, I don't know, it's like one of the Rocky movies. You know, there's always this intense relationship with the coach and the coach is yelling at him and he's acting like he's going to quit. He's wavering in his commitment and the coach you know, grabs him by the shirt and lapels. Do you really believe in me? Do you believe in me? Like, are you willing to give me everything? So it still sometimes comes out, but you're right. The flavor of the word has changed quite a bit. Yes. And I think also we see in popular usage, an element of voluntary decision is often taken to be involved. So that if somebody in religious context, especially if somebody asks, do you still believe in Jesus? The, the, the assumption is that are you still doing something that you have decided to do in the past and continue to maintain in your life? That's right. That could be like my boxing example. Yeah. But then it might be a purely intellectual question as well. That's the situation we find ourselves in, is there's this real two-sidedness in it. But actually, Dr. McCoyne, in some of your published work, you've mentioned that there are sort of three sides or facets to what you think is the right understanding of faith. You call it the CAB model, the CAB model. And I think you've mentioned all of those already, but what does the CAB stand for? Well, I think that when we, as philosophers, want to analyze any human phenomena, it's helpful to ask ourselves about what's involved in the cognitive aspect. You know, what do I think? And then how do I feel? So there's an affective or evaluative aspect. And then there's a behavioral dimension. What kinds of actions are involved? So the CAB stands for cognitive, affective, and behavioral. Faith involves a kind of positive response in each of those three areas, the cognitive, the affective, and the behavioral. So I do think that faith involves some kind of positive cognitive stance on the content that you take to be part of the gospel, that God exists, that Jesus was raised. 
So again, the objection that I have to the belief plus model, I don't have anything against belief. Again, well-grounded belief is great where it can be had. But the point is that there are lots of other forms of positive cognitive response that can play the role that belief is often asked to play here. So again, you might, even in the absence of belief, decide to accept the gospel, or you might decide to assume it as a basis for action or in your theoretical and practical reasoning. Let's talk about that a little bit. I think a lot of non-philosophers haven't heard of acceptance, where that means something distinct from belief. The notion of acceptance has been introduced in the last 20 or 30 years, but independently by a number of different philosophers, and I think in part precisely because we've come to use belief in such a narrow way that it's just this passive, involuntary state that philosophers have felt a need to introduce new concepts to describe other parts of our intellectual life. Acceptance is often characterized as a voluntary mental act, That's something that you can decide to accept or reject a proposition. And what's involved in acceptance would be a decision to use the proposition as a basis for your theoretical reasoning and premises of arguments, for example, or in your practical decision-making about how to act. And then, of course, individual philosophers build in lots of different requirements for accepting into their specific accounts. Acceptance is a topic that's been discussed recently in the philosophy of science literature, where philosophers are asking questions about the kinds of attitudes that scientists might take toward their theories. So think of even some of our best current theories, like quantum mechanics and general relativity. They're extremely well supported empirically, but one of the issues is that at least as currently formulated, these theories are often logically inconsistent with each other. And so that's the situation that we're in. It seems like the appropriate attitude isn't the full belief that both are true because they're logically inconsistent with each other. They can't both be true. But nevertheless, we want to have some sort of positive attitude towards these theories. They are, after all, some of our best current theories. So what should we think about the theories in the meantime while physicists continue to work on the quantum gravity program? How can we sort of reconcile the theories and synthesize them into a new kind of coherent view? Well, one of the ideas is that we can accept the theories in particular context, uh, depending on the questions that we have in view, even if we lack the full belief that, that the theories are true as currently formulated. We don't even have to get highfalutin with physics examples, I think. I mean, it could be a really mundane thing. You know, does the virus cause this symptom? And we really don't know. So, well, let's suppose it does. We'll try to confirm it and disconfirm it. Does he believe it? No, of course he doesn't believe that theory. Not yet. He maybe hopes to someday. So he's going to accept it and then make all these decisions as if he believed it. It ain't belief. That's right. Yeah, but it still can be a positive cognitive response. Kind of looks like belief from the outside, Mm -hmm. but it's not. It plays a similar role in people's lives.
I also think that faith involves some kind of a positive affective response, a valuing or holding dear. And that's indeed what the earlier meaning of belief, I think, is highlighting. It's something that you cherish, hold dear. Maybe you fall in love with God as portrayed in the life and teachings of Jesus or the writings of the New Testament. You think, oh, it'd be a wonderful thing if that is true. I can set my heart on that. I can deeply desire that it be true. Indeed, I might make it my pearl of great price, the thing that I value more than anything else. And then third, I think that there's a behavioral dimension to faith. And I've been particularly interested in exploring what faith looks like from the human side, what forms of response are available to us, even in the midst of doubt. I've been exploring forms of voluntary response that might be available to a person in the midst of doubt. And I think that there are forms of trust or reliance that one can have, even in the absence of belief. And then following a person is a sort of paradigmatic act that one can decide to undertake and then carry out. It strikes me that there's a very close analogy here with human friendship. Imagine that you're trying to be friends with me and I am just... I don't know, fearful of any kind of commitment or, I don't know, I can't trust guys named McCoin. I don't know what. For some reason, I'm just, I can't give myself fully in friendship, but I can decide to go out to dinner with you or let's go for a walk. Let's hang out. Let's play some video games. There's something I can do completely without having the belief that you're a suitable friend or even that you're a good guy. But if invited, I can take certain steps and uh, sort of trust you more and more. But it requires a little bit of each of these sides. Uh, There has to be a little bit of commitment to this idea that you're worthwhile. There has to be uh, some taking you to be valuable potential friends. There has to be a little bit of behavioral disposition to, you know, take your calls or hang out with you. Otherwise, I'm just not your friend at all. But if I have those things in a tiny measure, I'm your friend. Maybe not a very good friend, but I have what it takes. I have the trust that it takes, and I could maybe get more of it if I follow through with the friendship. Good. One of the points I think it's worth bringing out here is that I have in mind a notion of trust or reliance that I'm thinking about in terms of action. One fair question is the question, does trust in or reliance on a person presuppose belief that the person in whom you place trust is trustworthy or at least that the person exists, right? Let's think about that for a minute. Just as there are disagreements about how to think about belief, there are disagreements about how to think about trust. Some people think of trust as also a kind of passive, involuntary, psychological state that you find yourself in. And if you've had difficult experiences in the past in which people have repeatedly betrayed your trust, you might have trust issues and find it very hard to, again, place your trust in anyone. But what I have in mind is trust conceived as a kind of act that you can perform even in the absence of belief. So think about a teenager who is careless and irresponsible. You've let them take the car in the past and they have abused your trust, right? They've wrecked the car or um, got speeding tickets or things like that. And then they're coming to you again, asking, Dad, can I use the car? I think that you can decide to give them another chance. You can hand over the car keys. 
it may be therapeutic for them. You're giving them another opportunity to reestablish credibility. You might do that even while not believing that they will use the car responsibly. Maybe you can't believe that they won't use the car responsibly and still trust them, but I'm interested in a sense of trusting or relying on them there that is an action that you can perform even in the face of evidence that they very likely won't be worthy of your trust. Now, the case of existence is especially difficult, right? So Alvin Plantinga says, well, you can't very well trust your dentist if you don't believe that your dentist exists, right? How do you place your trust in the dentist in the absence of belief that the dentist exists? And that is initially puzzling, but let's think about it for a minute. So in Homer's Odyssey, Odysseus goes away to battle and doesn't come back. His wife Penelope is left not knowing whether Odysseus is dead or alive. And it's years that Odysseus has been gone. She is being approached by other suitors and she faces this decision to remarry her wake. She may lack the belief that Odysseus exists and yet nevertheless still trust, for example, that if he is alive, that he is remaining faithful to her. And if it's possible that he could make his way back, he's trying, doing everything within his power to do so. So she can still trust in Odysseus without believing that Odysseus exists. You could add to the example a little bit that occasionally she gets a little note or something. She thinks it's from him, but maybe it's not. It's ambiguous. She really can't judge, but she might choose to believe that that's him. Or maybe a, a rumor report comes back to her. Yeah, so we could vary the evidential circumstances in all kinds of interesting ways, but I think it's fair to describe her as facing a kind of decision about how to conduct her life going forward, and it seems to me not unreasonable for her to decide to continue to remain faithful to Odysseus, and here it may be sufficient to ground that action if she merely has the hope that he'll return. Now, on the point that you can't very well trust God that God exists if God's existence is precisely what is in question. I think here it's helpful to think about the role of testimony. So we are presented with the gospel proclamation. Jesus's earliest followers, the authors of the New Testament, Paul, they're making these claims that Jesus was raised they say that Jesus was speaking with a kind of authority, claiming to be sent from God, and in some sense to enjoy a, an intimate relationship with God that the rest of us don't enjoy. And so we're presented with these claims, and then we have a decision about whether or not to place our trust in them or not. I think that you could, in principle, place your trust in Jesus or in the testimony of his earliest followers. And then on that basis, trust that they will testify reliably. Part of that testimony includes or presupposes the claim that God exists. And so on the basis of your trust in Jesus, you can trust that God exists as well, even in the absence of confident belief that God exists. Now, in making this, are you taking into account what you have to gain or lose in it? In what sense is it permissible? Is it rational? Is it prudent? Something that, you know, makes sense in terms of your own interests or both? In what way is it good, are you suggesting? I'm interested in the implications that this view has for how we think about the rationality of religious commitment. And I think that there's a case to be made that faith of this sort can be both epistemically and practically rational. I'm not saying that it's always rational in either of these senses. Obviously, there's lots of ways in which faith can go wrong. But let's ask the question about what's required for the epistemic rationality of faith. 
I think that epistemic rationality is primarily a matter of making a proper response to our evidence. As Hume said, the wise person proportions their belief to the evidence. There's a place in our intellectual lives for trying to think about what's true or likely to be true, and we do well in that activity. We want to have opinions that are true and avoid having opinions that are false. And we would like to have our opinions fit or conform to the evidence that's available to us. If we think about faith as a committed covenantal relationship, I think that we're free to use our minds to the full extent possible to honestly consider where the evidence stands and to attempt to form opinions about how likely some of these claims are. Some of the claims, we should not forget, they should strike us as wild, right? Mm-hmm. Jesus was raised from the dead, right? That mm-hmm. That is not something that we see every day. And I think it's important to be able to honestly consider that and ask ourselves, how likely do I think that that is to be true? My claim is that even if you find yourself fairly low on the confidence scale in a claim like that, that you can continue to honestly wrestle with your doubts in the context of a committed covenantal relationship, and that your commitment to remaining engaged isn't simply contingent on how likely you think those claims are to be true at any given moment. So I think we get a very different view of the relationship between faith and doubt on the covenantal commitment way of thinking about faith than we do on the belief plus model. So that's epistemic rationality. Basically, faith is going to be rationally permissible. We're going to be in the clear. It won't be epistemically defective so long as you're doing your level best to honestly proportion your opinions to the evidence. Now, practical rationality is a different matter. This concerns not questions about what to think, but questions about how to act. It's important to see that questions about the rationality of how to act involve not just how likely we think that something is to be true, but also how much we value the various possible outcomes. Right. How much we stand to gain or lose. That's right. Decision theory has become a very influential way of thinking about practical rationality. It goes back to Pascal's famous discussion of the wager argument for the existence of God, but now it's used by economists and insurance companies widely, and also by some philosophers. Now, according to decision theory, what you should do is to act in such a way as to maximize your expected utility, right? So the thought is that even if you take a particular outcome to be unlikely, if there's a big enough discrepancy in the relative value that you assign to different outcomes, it can still be rational to act on something. You know, sometimes we take chances in life. You decide to open a small business, even though you know that 90% of small businesses fail within the first year. Or you decide to pursue your dream of becoming a professional baseball player, even though you know that most people don't make it. There's a place for that kind of risk-taking and committed pursuit in our ordinary lives, and I think also in religious contexts. I think that the motivations that undergird our value, people are sometimes put off by Pascal's wager because it makes religious commitment look like buying fire insurance or something, you know, people or want gambling. To, yeah, or gambling. Yeah, people want to sort of get the goodies of heaven, you know, and there's a, if, even if there's a small chance that they'll get it, if they just believe or act as if it's true, maybe they'll get the, they're all kinds of objections to Pascal's wager as it's so often formulated. But I want to point out 
both that one's motivation for valuing following Jesus highly. They don't have to be self-interested reasons like the desire to get your ticket to heaven. They can also stem out of a love for God as God is portrayed in the life and teachings of Jesus. It can stem from core values that you have and thinking, look, this is a good way of life. The kinds of things that Jesus is calling us to do, to love God and to love neighbor, they seem to be of great moral worth. And there seems to be enormous value in even living our earthly lives in that sort of way. And for whatever reason, if you place enormous value on the Christian story and you think it'd be a great thing, if true, if, if that's your pearl of great price, even if you also value a sort of naturalistic view of the world and think there would still be many goods that we could enjoy in this life, if there's a huge discrepancy between those two possible states, God existing or not existing, and you think, oh, it'd be so much better if God did exist and that I respond to God seeking to live in a sacred committed personal relationship with the creator of the universe who said to love us. I think that is so valuable. It can be practically rational to pursue that way of life on almost any non-zero probability. So what I hear you saying is that there are many sides to our lives. There's belief formation, that's one thing, and the aim is to get as many true ones as you can, avoid as many false ones as you can regarding important things, which what are the important things? Well, that's partly why it's so hard. And this isn't directly voluntary, but there's different things we choose to study, we choose to think, we choose to reflect, and eventually we somehow come up with these beliefs. And then there's the kind of thing that's in decision theory and game theory where trying to figure out how to make the right moves to maximize pleasure or some kind of benefit. Maybe we use this when we pick stocks or decide where to go to college or what medical treatment to undergo. But you're saying the choice we have as regards believing in God or not, that is to say trusting in God or not, needn't be really on either one of those models. I mean, I go back again to the friendship case. Again, you've invited me to, be, to friendship with you, and I'm not sure I'm going to go through with it. I have some things holding me back and pulling on me to keep me from committing. If I'm going to be your friend, why is it? Well, it's not going to be because I now know that you're like the best friend material around. How am I going to know that? I just met you, you know? Any response I'm going to give you right now is going to be pretty minimal based on information. So as far as forming correct beliefs and having rich knowledge of you, well, that, that's going to take a long time and it's not easy to get. You know, what if I just approach it like wagering and betting? <laughs> okay, well, that might make sense. On the other hand, it looks like if I'm going to pursue friendship, it might just be because I think friendship is intrinsically valuable. And I just find myself with a drive towards human companionship and company and relationship with, you know, like a guy-buddy relationship. It's different from parent-child or marriage. or But this is a different kind of relationship. It's a relationship of your creator to the creature or God to the worshiper of God. And you might think, well, wow, that's an important thing. It might be important morally and practically, but it might just have its own value, you might think, that's worth committing to, even if you're not sure if it even is real. Good. And let me just clarify the role that I'm suggesting that decision theory can play here. In Pascal's wager is traditionally formulated, it's brought in as a way of arguing that some kind of religious response is actually rationally required, even for the, the libertine, as Pascal says. The libertine would be irrational not to respond by seeking some form of deeper relationship with God on considerations solely based in self-interest. 
that's not what I'm saying. I'm defending the rational permissibility of faith in some circumstances, rather than saying that it's rationally required for everyone. And I'm also not as committed to the decision-theoretic framework as some of my colleagues in the philosophy of science and epistemology are. The role that it plays, in my view, is this. Look, this is one very influential way of thinking about practical rationality in today's world. And it's worth pointing out that faith construed as a committed covenantal relationship can turn out to be practically rational when judged by those lights. On the other hand, you wouldn't expect your friend to be constantly calculating the chances for success of the friendship, right? You might think that personal relationship in many cases requires that you leave aside the calculating. You know, imagine that you caught your wife with a spreadsheet and she's, you know, hmm, it's not quite as good a bet on you now as it was a year ago, but yeah, maybe it'll pull out, you know, because she, then she shows you the numbers. Good. <laughs> I don't think many of us want to approach life in those terms, and the view that I'm advocating here doesn't require it. Indeed, it doesn't require the person who responds in faith to be thinking in decision-theoretic terms at all. It's just given that a person has decided to follow Jesus, say, and the philosopher comes along and raises the question, can that be practically rational? We can then point to the decision-theoretic framework and say, look, Given this person's values, given how much value he or she places on the gospel proclamation, yes, it can be practically rational for them to respond in faith for a vast range of probability assessments they might have. So it would be practically rational if they fully believed the proclamation of the gospel, but they value it so much, it would also be practically rationality if they merely believe that it's likely to be true or more likely than not, or the likeliest of the relevant alternatives, or even if they think that it's not the likeliest of the alternatives that they take to be relevant, but they think it's the most valuable, given that they think that it's so valuable, it can be rational by the lights of decision theory for them to act on the assumption that it's true. So what you're pointing out is a person might be in a lot of different circumstances as regards their view of what's true and what's false. They could be in different responses as regards their views about what's valuable and what's not valuable. But what seems to be required for a commitment of faith, that is this type of trust, is that it does seem reasonable to act in a certain way. If you say to somebody, trust me or believe in me or have faith in me, you're asking them to actually do something take my hand or follow my directions. Look, just trust me, okay? So you're saying that there can be steps that would count as acts of faith, uh, even if in pretty poor circumstances, you're not at all sure about this. You're not even totally sure it's a good thing. You think it's a good thing, maybe, but it, it might depend what the act is, but there can still be acts there that, that are uh, available to you. That's right. So let's go back to the case of Mother Teresa. Right. She's placed this relationship with God at the center of her life. She's made sacred vows to honor this lifelong commitment. It's more important to her than anything else in this world. And given that she values it so highly, even in those moments where she's in the darkest night of the soul and the deepest doubts, she continued to respond by following Jesus. Now, I think it's unlikely that she ever was thinking in decision-theoretic terms, right? Mm -hmm. And she needn't be. But a philosopher can come in and ask the question, was she decision-theoretically rational? Or was she practically rational by the lights of decision theory? And I think, 
given the particular combination of very high values that she places on the gospel, that even in the times when her doubts were most intense, she was practically rational to continue to act in faith. Yeah, and as concerns the kind of acts that she would be doing, you know, caring for the poor, keeping her vows as a nun, praying, and so on, there's nothing about those acts that requires that one be certain or even have a really firm belief, or maybe even a belief. There's no hypocrisy in continuing the course when the belief maybe has disappeared, so long as you're not repla- you haven't replaced it with the belief that there's no such thing, but that's not what we're talking about. So the acts that she's engaged in don't presuppose these things. They, they seem compatible with being in a very, as you say, dark place. That's right. And I think it's also worth pointing out that many of us would agree that the particular actions that she was engaging with were of recognizable moral value. She's out there helping sick people, poor people with all kinds of needs. And most of us can recognize that those are good things. She's not talking about, you know, acts of terrorism or things like that. We should recognize that in addition to these questions about epistemic and practical rationality, that it's also legitimate to raise moral questions about the value of the particular courses of action under consideration. And it's clear that not all of the actions that might be performed in the name of faith would be of equal moral worth. Dr. McCoyne, thanks for talking with us. Thank you, Dale. Great to be here. This week's thinking music has been Green Leaves by Jason Shaw. As always, there'll be a link where you can listen to and download this track at the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. If you love the Trinities podcast, please share the podcast on social media. Help us to get the word out on Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and so on. Another thing you can do is give us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can support the podcast by giving us a one-time or a monthly donation through PayPal. Just look for the orange buttons on the right side of any blog post. Lastly, make your voice heard. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode. Or join our very active Facebook group at facebook.com groups trinities. We're always open to show ideas, guest suggestions, objections, and so on. Sometimes I even respond to feedback in an episode. Don't forget then to share, to rate, to chip in when you can, and to talk back. Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.